Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale Global Online is the flagship publication of the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization and explores the implications of the world's growing interconnectedness through people, products, and ideas. Once a Winner, China Sees Globalization's Downside, Part 2, by Jeffrey Wasserstrom, read by Patricia Alejandro. Since the late 1980s, China's leaders have embraced globalization in a bid to remake the nation and has recently sought to leverage its growing economic power in a grand rebranding exercise. China, the exercise tried to show, was no longer Mao's backward revolutionary country, but a modern superpower. Unfortunately for China, the same interconnected world that enabled its economic search has sometimes stimulated the nation's public relations efforts. The rebranding drive has overlapping but somewhat different domestic and international ambitions. President Hu Jintao and his comrades strive to convince China's citizens that they can simultaneously raise living standards, maintain stability, and garner international respect. The emphasis abroad, meanwhile, has been on convincing residents of foreign countries, including people of Chinese ancestry, the People's Republic of China 2.0, though still run by a communist party, has been utterly transformed. The biggest successes of this rebranding drive have depended on Beijing's ability to ride the tide and take advantage of the distinctively global aspects of the current era. Without far-flung supply chains and fast-flowing foreign investment, including that of ethnic Chinese in Taiwan and other locales, China could not have surged past Japan to become the world's second largest economy. And without satellite television and the internet, the visually stunning opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympic Games and strong showing by Chinese athletes could not have had the dramatic impact they did in 2008, helping the spell last the lingering visions of China as the technologically backward sick man of Asia. Yet when this rebranding drive stumbles, as it has periodically in the two years since the Olympics, this too is often due to the special nature of the current period of globalization. The Nobel Peace Prize going to prison of conscience, Liu Xiaobao, someone Beijing lobbied hard to keep from receiving the award, is the latest example of how difficult the Communist Party finds it in the robust global times to call the shots with international bodies. Before Liu got his prize, the 2000 novel for literature went to the Paris-based author and critic of the government, Gao Xinjiang. This carried a special sting due to what Julia Lovell author of a book about Gao's win, calls China's noble complex. China's leaders have argued for decades that the PRC has become the kind of country that should be producing noble winners in many fields. They see it as cruelly ironic that, while some Chinese are indeed becoming noble laureates, they are honored not for breakthroughs in areas such as economics or medicine, but for writings that Beijing insists are vile, the creations of miscreants or criminals who the West wrongly lauds as heroes. Back to the 2008 Olympics and its symbolism, all did not run smoothly, of course, from the Chinese government's point of view. There were rough spots and even the most successful to date of all Chinese soft power spectacles. For example, the torch relay, the longest and most elaborate in Olympic history, was supposed to be a grand symbol of China's re-engagement with every part of the world. In the end, though, 
Only some stops outside of China went as planned. Protesters angered by Beijing's policies towards Tibet and other issues held demonstrations, some rowdy, to mark the torch's arrival in cities such as Paris. On the whole, though, domestic and foreign media reports tended to line up fairly neatly once the games began. The main storyline was that, by successfully mounting such a grand show, China demonstrated how dramatically it had changed and that it was again a central player in world affairs. Such a message was supposed to be carried forward by two subsequent events dubbed Olympics of a sort. The prestigious 2009 Frankfurt Book Fair, called an Olympics for Literature by Chinese media, and the 2010 Shanghai World Expo, often referred to in China as an Economic Olympics or Olympics of Technology. If all had gone according to plan, the Frankfurt Fair would have generated domestic and international headlines trumpeting the growing profile of Chinese literature and increased respect for China's cultural traditions. Things began to go wrong for China a month or so before its October opening, when a seminar linked to the event was scheduled to take place including writers who have drawn Beijing's ire. Poet and dissident in exile, Bei Ling, was among those invited to take part. And so was Dai King, the China-based environmental activist whose writings are banned from publication in the PRC. Beijing expressed displeasure at this lineup and called on German organizers of the session to pull invitations to the writers the government found objectionable. At first, fair representatives did an about-face and sought to placate the Chinese government by revoking the invitations, but in the end, the authors came and spoke. The result was a public relations disaster, as the big story of the fair became Beijing's ham-handed efforts to limit freedom of speech in an international venue and bully Germany, undermining in basic ways visions of the PRC 2.0 as a country that has become much less ideologically rigid and a more congenial participant in global affairs than was Mao's China. Flash forward one year, and we see a parallel situation but with a higher profile in the international news. From Beijing's point of view, October 2010 was supposed to be a month when the news coverage of the PRC dealt with upbeat topics such as China's closing and on claiming record visitors for a World's Fair, a record that currently stands at 64 million and is held by regional rival Japan for the Osaka 1970 Expo. Readers can find those stories about the Shanghai Expo, of course but almost exclusively in the Chinese press. The biggest story internationally is Liu winning the Nobel Peace Prize, despite or perhaps partially because of Beijing's pressuring the Norwegian committee in charge of the award to give it to someone, anyone else. Beijing has claimed venues, such as the Global Times, an English-language paper linked to the Communist Party, that Liu's wing reflects anti-PRC prejudice an extraordinary terror of China's rise and the Chinese model in the West. However, well or badly, this rhetoric plays to domestic audiences. To most foreigners, it comes across as strident and paranoid and does nothing to help brand China as a modern country. The road from the opening ceremonies of August 8, 2008, to this year's Nobel Peace Prize Award has not been smooth for Beijing's rebranding drive. One common thread in the story of this campaign, though, is that both high points and low points involve global events and new technologies. After all, 
and he was in prison, not for a paper petition he helped draft, and for which he collected signatures from people wielding pens. Rather, he was given an 11-year sentence on charges of subversion for his role in Charter 08, a bold call for expanded civil liberties intended from the start to be distributed online, via the internet, and new media technology that censors in Beijing work over time to control, especially at times like this. Not long ago, the same medium was dubbed God's Gift to China by an activist and writer once less known but now world-famous, Liu Xiaobao. Jeffrey Wasserstrom is professor of history and department chair at University of California, Irvine, and the author, most recently, of China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, published this year by Oxford University Press. This and other Yale Global articles can be found at yaleglobal.yale.edu.